Are you tired of using 10 different apps to manage your tax or accounting practice? The folks at TaxDome have built an all-in-one practice management platform that includes everything you need. Secure document storage, CRM, unlimited free e-signatures, workflow client portal, mobile apps, PDF editing, and even your own website. Stay tuned to learn more from our sponsor, TaxDome, later in the episode. So, David, what do you think of our new theme song? Are you playing this with your keyboard in Excel or something? Is it an Excel synthesizer? Close. Close. It Man, is a... I know you so well. Like, it's so good. <laughs> so, this was a tweet from Accountancy Problems, studying accounting at 3 a.m., and it's a video of somebody's hands playing four 10-key electronic calculators. I, I think these are... Japanese or Korean calculators, the kind where they unnecessarily make uh, an entire scale just for fun, right? Like, yeah. why not? Why wouldn't your calculator be able to play music? And they figured out how to play that song. I think that's like Pokemon, I think. I think that was like the Pokemon theme song. So, you know, it brings back memories. But, it, but it's uh, uh, 10 keys. Nice. Yeah, exactly. Played on a 10 key. Like, it's it's pretty cool. Link will be in the show notes. Speaking of sound, so like last last week we talked about naming the Intuit Dome or the name of the Intuit Dome. Yes. Somebody suggested, you know, like in basketball, like every time they make a free throw, a lot of stadiums will play a noise. Mm-hmm. Remember the QuickBooks, uh, when QuickBooks desktop, every time you record a transaction, it made that beep. Oh God, it's stuck in my head too. Right? I mean. You, I can't describe it with my mouth, but I hear it right now because <laughs> I'm talking about it, right? And everybody knows yeah, it. Yeah. And like, that would be the perfect thing they should play every time somebody sinks a basket. The QuickBooks, uh, the, 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 the entry sound. The recording beat button. Yeah. yeah. ching or whatever, that noise it made. Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, more follow-up from last week. We had a lot of fun talking about timesheets on LinkedIn. We could talk about that. We can talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's dress at the Met gala. I don't know if you saw this. I did see that. I I think everybody saw it. It's this white dress with red lettering that says tax the rich. I loved the article in accounting today. The headline is AOC's tax the rich dress could have used a different slogan. And it points out the irony of attending a Met gala, which is basically a giant tax loophole. So the author suggests that it would have been more appropriate if the dress had said, this event is a tax loophole for the rich. Or if it said, cancel the Met Gala, right? Or (laughs) Exactly. Right, right. So that's the funny part. Stop attending this gala is what it should have said. If she really wanted to make a statement, she should have not attended because here's why. A ticket to the Met uh, Gala costs $35,000, but for tax purposes according to this article, it is not the equivalent of buying floor seats to an NBA playoff game. It's a fundraising event for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and that $35,000 is therefore a charitable contribution. In New York City, where the combined top federal, state, and local income tax rates add up to about 50%, that tax deduction is pretty darn valuable. And it will only become more so if Democrats in Washington get their way and substantially raise taxes on the rich. It just looked really out of touch from multiple fronts including her lack of tax knowledge. I have a quick follow-up on 
Intuit via MailChimp. This is from the future A16Z blog, which is basically, um, are you familiar with Andreessen Horowitz? Yeah, yeah. The venture capital firm. Mark Andreessen started Netscape, which became Firefox, right? And they they huge investments, right? Mm -hmm. So they had an article about as more workers go solo, the software stack is the new firm. They have an image in here and it talks about stitching together the solo stack. Actually, before we talk about that, I'll talk about the other image first. So basically, if you have an organization, right, you have your operations, your HR benefits, your legal department, your finance department, your sales, your marketing partnerships, your people department, your procurement, right? You have all these departments of your company and they're all becoming software tools now. Would you agree? They're becoming software tools. Yes, no. Uh, well, if you need HR benefits, you could use Gusto. Okay, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Okay, yeah, makes sense, right. So, so then they go down even deeper and they really just specifically talk about the solo stack. So this would be, Somebody like you now that you are no longer employed and you kind of have your own thing going. Mm-hmm. Here's all the thing you probably need, the tasks you need to do. You need website building. You need calendar management. You need a custom CRM. You need accounting or record keeping. You need expenses or a credit card and you need bill pay services. You need benefits. You need taxes. You need marketing. And you probably need some content delivery system. All of these but the content delivery system. And arguably, maybe MailChimp does kind of get into that. Now Intuit now owns. They have website building. They have calendar management. They have CRM. They have accounting, obviously. Yeah. Uh, credit yeah, card yeah. expense management. They offer bill pay built in the product. Intuit payroll has benefits, obviously taxes. Now they own marketing. And then arguably content delivery. So like one piece of a solo business owner is maybe what they don't have. So you're saying that part of the reason that Intuit acquired MailChimp, or maybe the main reason is they're just building out this whole back office Every department of your business, you can now run on Intuit stack. Exactly. Makes sense. Now, now this article doesn't say that, but when I saw this picture, I was like, oh my goodness, this mm-hmm. is, this is, Intuit has this whole stack now. Um, and the article also has like the stack for like slightly bigger companies on how that could like go through. Um, and it also talks like niche, right? Like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe yours is writing or e-commerce, right? Uh, maybe it's law and you get Clio. So it talks a little bit about that, but it's really talking about how like, how you run your business isn't really less have being a firm. It's going to be more the software you pick to run your business on. It's replacing That's, your concept of a firm or a company. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Approval Max. During my career, I've worked on both ends of the AP process, from the scanning of the bills and now paying of bills. Repeatedly, the one thing that I've heard over and over again is what about the approval of bills? This is where Approval Max comes in. Approval Max enables flexible multi-step approvals for key accounts payable documents. By using Approval Max, you can ensure a bill is approved before it ever gets entered into QuickBooks Online. Approval requests can be routed based on QBO data like vendor, amounts, category, and class. Then once the bill is approved, it'll move to the accounting system to be paid, and it'll even include an attached audit trail documenting the approval details. Approval Max makes approvers work easier as well with automated notifications and a mobile app. Approval Max offers direct integration with Dex Prepare to ensure you have completely paperless accounts payable process from capturing to approving to paying. If you want to learn more about Approval Max and to get your free partner edition of Approval Max, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash approval max. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash A-P-P-R-O-V-A-L-M-A-X.
I got follow-up on the IRS Tax Pro account feature that we talked about recently. The AICPA has a newsletter, and they do a weekly survey. It's called the Weekly Weigh-In. The question last week was, have you used the IRS's new Tax Pro account feature? And if so, how did it go? And I'm curious to know, hey, are tax pros adopting this new cool thing that the IRS has released? And just to refresh my memory, what is this little thing you can do now with the IRS? Uh, I believe it allows you to do powers of attorney. I think that's the main thing. Uh, there's something else. It's kind of limited right now, but they're going to expand it. The idea is that you know you can put in your client's information and you can get them to sign this electronically through the IRS portal rather than you having to go get them to sign it and then fax it in or mail it in. Got it. Th this form. So the question is, are you using it? And the survey came back and said, uh, 7% say, yes, I appreciate the online functionality and quick processing. 27% said, yes, but I had some hiccups getting it to work. So that's about two thirds to get, or one third together. So a third of accountants are using it. And most of them had some trouble getting it to work. The other two thirds are like, no. <laughs> and 21% said they prefer to stick with mail or fax. Another interestingly to stick with mail or fax. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, hey, they've got a system that works. I guess keep keep using it. That's all that I've got <laughs> yeah, as yeah. far as that goes. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Mail or right. fax, man, that's that's the way to go. So I these, guess. these aren't follow-up, but if we want to stay on kind of accountants at a high level, um, let, let, let's, 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 do you want to talk about the revolving door of the accounting industry through government? Yeah. Or well, do we I, want to talk about how accountants can be the planetary hero against global warming? Well, let's talk about that first one, because this is something that you mentioned recently, and we have talked about a lot, is this equivalent of the military industrial complex in the world of regulation, the revolving door, whatever you want to call it. I saw this article and I was going to I was going to bring this up because we were just talking about this and now it's a, a headline in the New York Times, right? Yes, so headline in the New York Times and then there's been some other articles that have been referenced because um, it's not something that's new. No. But it's really the timing and the speed of it. I find when I look at some of these articles where somebody would be at a firm, lobbying to get something changed, to be a tax lawyer at Firm X. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll find the exactness of this, but, you know, and I'm just trying to illustrate the point of the speed. Yeah. They they leave the firm, take the job internally at the IRS or the Treasury taxation, whatever they do, right? Yeah, the Treasury. Yeah. They get the policy changed for what they were arguing, fighting for, and then they quit and rejoin the firm 18 months later, like that quickly. And then obviously they be then when they leave, and that's the really the the disturbing part of this. They leave and they become partners. They get you know a million dollars a year salary. Mm -hmm. They really mm -hmm. get rewarded for the work they put in on that other side. But I'll let you start. You, well, uh, yeah, I mean, like I saw, I, I read this in the New York Times. The headline is "How Accounting Giants Craft Favorable Tax Rules from Inside Government," and the stories are exactly what you outlined. Here's one. For six years, Audrey Ellis and Adam Feuerstein worked together at PwC, helping the world's biggest companies avoid taxes. In mid-2018, one of Mr. Feuerstein's clients was trying to persuade government officials about a new federal tax break for real estate companies. Mr. Feuerstein contacted Ms. Ellis, who had recently joined the Treasury Department. They had worked together at PwC. So he knew she was over there. She was drafting the rules for this very deduction. 
They met together that summer and the lobbyists. The next week, the Treasury granted their wish, a tax loophole or deduction or whatever you want to call it, worth billions of dollars for uh, PwC's clients. And then a year later, Ellis returns to PwC, immediately promoted to partner, and she now works again with Mr. Feuerstein, advising large companies on how to exploit wrinkles in the tax regulations that Ms. Ellis helped to write. And that's just one example. There's many of them. And it's a monstrous article. Um, I noticed representatives from KPMG, EY, PwC, Deloitte, and RSM declined to comment. Of course. So, so, so this revolving door, there's actually some numbers. In the last four presidential administrations, there were at least 35 instances of round trips from big accounting firms through the Treasury's tax policy office, along with the IRS and Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, and back to the same firm. And at least in 16 of those cases, so 16 out of the 35, the officials were promoted to partner when they rejoined their old accounting firms. Some firms often doubled the pay of these employees. And like you said, some partners end up earning more than a million a year. So a lot of times you'll see like career, there's stuff out there. I've seen blog posts, I've seen podcasts, like how to become a partner at an accounting firm. Mm-hmm. This might be your fastest route. <laughs> yeah, do that. You know, talk about the swamp, right? This is this is exactly it when it comes to tax law is this kind of, I, mean, I can't believe this is allowed. I mean, there's, I know there's like cooling off periods, but they're super short if there are any. It's like, maybe a year or two years. There's no restrictions on if you can rejoin the same firm. And I, I, I know that there's arguments that, oh, if you don't let people go back into private, then they won't go into government in the first place. But I feel like a two-year stint is is not enough in government anyway before you go back into private. It's just not enough to like serve the public. Did you see the, the, the story, the 2010 story about the Bristol-Myers case? No. In around 2010, Deloitte and PwC, they both figured out how to create a lucrative new tax shelter. And it enabled multinational corporations like Bristol-Myers Squibb to avoid billions of dollars in federal income tax by routing profits through offshore subsidiaries. So this is probably like that. Remember the the Ireland- The Irish sandwich. Yeah, the Irish sandwich and all these things, right? So that was in 2010. In 2015, the Treasury Department tried to shut it down. The IRS sought more than a billion dollars in back taxes. But then in May 2016, the tax advisors and the American Bar Association, the tax lawyers, they basically started politicking against this. And then Ari Burke, a tax lawyer for Deloitte, he was one of the designers of this tax shelter. He eventually went to Washington, took a job for the Treasury. By 2017, they issued new regulations and made it easier for companies to do this. And then in June of 2017, he returned back to Deloitte. So he would, he'd even lived Deloitte for a year and he's promoted a partner. Wow. what an, That's a great example. And, and that's kind of how this works. Um, yeah, so there's yeah. an article I can link in that talks a little bit how it works. And then the other article I saw was kind of telling people just get used to it. Like, like or just get over it. Because the problem is, quote unquote, the gap between private and public salaries are simply too great to overcome with any sort of raise. Even if a big one were politically feasible, which it's not, the IRS will never compete successfully with white shoe law and accounting firms, at least not when cash is the only currency in question. Well, so what? Then the only other option is to let people do this? Go into government to basically lobby for their clients and not for the public? But isn't this happening with like the FDA and the Bureau of Farming and military? Like it's happening across the board in our government, right? But we have ways 
to we're, we're supposed prevent- to have integrity. This is the accounting we're, industry. Yeah, this is accounting. We're supposed to have integrity. Isn't integrity like number number one? Ethics is supposed to be super important, right? It, well, yeah, it, 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 it's like a fifteen minute long article. Yeah, no, it's just it's disgusting, is what it is. So uh, okay, I have some follow up on Peter Thiel's uh, five billion dollar Roth. Okay, his Roth is being targeted by a House bill. I mean, it's not specifically targeting him because you can't do that with legislation. You can't just write a law that only affects one person. But it's so narrowly targeted that it probably probably would. House Democrats unveiled a tax package that would force distributions from uh, a Roth IRA or any individual retirement account if it exceeded $10 million. That would definitely apply to Peter Thiel. He'd be forced to take the $5 billion out and pay tax on it. Um, this is so easy. He could pay it. <laughs> I know. Like, well, he just sent I, I his joke. tax lawyer to the treasury. <laughs> like, this is a, like, he's going to get around this. It's so simple. I, we have the formula. We just talked about I it. Well, I, I joked on uh, Twitter. It's like, this is a problem that I would like to have. Uh, what else here? Oh, I, I got to talk about this, David. Um, did you hear about the new law targeting Amazon.com warehouses in California? This almost slipped past me. No. So California governor, Gavin Newsom, signed a new law that will require Amazon.com and other companies to disclose any quotas or workplace productivity measures it applies to workers in the state. Amazon is unique among e-commerce companies in measuring its humans that work in its warehouses by quotas and productivity and how many boxes they are boxing up and how many items they are shipping. And if you don't meet these quotas, then you can be fired automatically. Not even a human is involved in this. And it's very effective at increasing employee productivity because it's very clear what you have to do. Some labor advocates have complained about this, creating bad working conditions and increasing injuries. Uh, Supposedly, Amazon has higher injury rates than the national average. And so they're saying, well, they want to take down some of these quotas and stuff. So so the new bill, what it does is it requires Amazon to disclose. So is it only Amazon or is this like well, warehouse workers? Like what's it's, the... It's basically Amazon because I think it's, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's warehouses with more than a thousand workers. So that's, you know, going to Why be... not accounting firms that use the billable hour? <laughs> Well, that was my joke, right? Is, oh, okay. You're already headed this way. Okay. You got it. You, you, you got it. So that's where I was going with this is we were talking last week about timesheets and the billable hour and how timesheets create perverse incentives in firms and it creates a terrible work environment. People get sick. People die because they work too much because of timesheets. And so my joke was maybe the big accounting firms should have to disclose their productivity metrics that they put onto staff just like this. Because it creates a hazardous work environment. I, I don't even know what's a joke. I think it's the parallels are very <laughs> obvious here. Although in, in principle, like I don't like this because why not just put in place rules about workplace injuries? And if you want Amazon to make its workplace safer, then let them do that. Don't don't micromanage their method of increasing employee productivity. I mean, this is the thing that's made it great. Like, this is the thing that makes our packages come in two days. So I thought that was funny. Um, yeah, maybe we should have a law that forces big accounting firms to disclose their their metrics. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Taxdome. 
Wouldn't it be great if you only had to use two apps at your firm? One to do the actual accounting or bookkeeping work and the other to manage everything else? That is the idea behind Taxdome. Use the app you need to do your core tax, accounting, or bookkeeping work and use Taxdome to run everything else in your firm. Taxdome is an all-in-one, easy-to-use solution to handle both client-facing work and collaborating with your team internally. From marketing to onboarding, communicating with your clients, managing work, sharing documents, gathering signatures, and getting paid. Instead of cobbling together 10 apps to run your practice, Taxdome does it all. Because Taxdome does so much, I want to clearly list out what you're getting. Workflow templates and automation, CRM, unlimited document storage, PDF editor, client portal, unlimited e-signatures, client checklist, a custom domain and website, engagement letters, payments, and mobile apps. Training support is always free. Taxdome offers unlimited one-on-one white glove support via phone and chat, onboarding and training sessions to get your team set up and running smoothly. The cost savings alone of paying for one app subscription versus dozens of apps makes checking out Taxdome worth your time. To learn more about Taxdome, start a two-week trial and receive an extra month on your subscription as a listener of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash taxdome. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash T-A-X-D-O-M-E. Taxdome, everything you need to run your practice. So I saw an article, this is on Accounting Today, about KPMG urges boards to focus on climate risk. It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting, caught my eye. But if you really read the article, basically KPMG and probably all the big four have probably figured out a new revenue stream. KPMG and other accounting firms have been expanding their efforts to help clients with environmental, social, and governance reporting as ESG funds grow in popularity in the response to the accelerating pace of climate change. KPMG set up a unit known as KPMG impact to help clients with ESG reporting. Yeah, this is great, actually. I, I think it's this a whole is revenue pop- bucket. Yeah, yeah it, and it's, it's, a, it's a non-GAAP reporting method that the market is demanding because people are starting to care about environmental stuff, and they want to invest in companies that are taking care of the environment. I think it's, it's awesome, actually. And this is a care- positive thing. Yeah, and they care so much that I found another article that's actually, you know, like these these reading apps, let's show you how long it's going to take to read the article. Mm-hmm. 21 minutes. Like this is by far the longest article I think I've brought to the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I won't cover the whole thing, but it's called Heroic Accounting. And I'll read the first sentence here. As concerns mount about social and environmental sustainability, an unlikely planetary hero has emerged, the accountant. And the gist of this is a collection of investors, academics, and business leaders have proposed better accounting practices that can overthrow, quote unquote, the tyranny of profit and set capitalism on a more sustainable track. They're calling it impact accounting, and they want to tabulate all parts of a company's influence on planetary welfare, including economic profit, employment, social equity, biodiversity, and climate, and translate all of this into a single measure of impact representative in dollars and cents. Another Harvard professor goes on to express this as accountants hold the key to the salvation of civilization. (laughs) Oh, God. That's going a little over the top, wouldn't you say? But I don't, maybe, if you can quantify this stuff, then maybe you can do something about it. I, yeah. And yeah. now it, it, it's interesting because it just goes on and on. And, and they kind of are saying, oh, we can do this because, you know, after the crash of 1929, they adopted GAAP and accounting standards. Right. They actually think like, oh, if you put this into 
reports, it's going to matter. But my point of view is just as in nobody cares about the gap financial statements. Yeah. <laughs> it almost feels like there's somebody's research paper because it, it actually has the counterpoints in it. And so it's, it's worth kind of just perusing. It is a hard read. There's no doubt. But some people, um, they want to trans, they, they need to translate, you know, value. And so they're going to have teams of people that decide, Blake, when you bought that bottle of water, the value to you, Blake, was how much? Well, it depends where I am, right? It's contextual. If I'm at an airport, I'm willing to pay 10 bucks for a bottle of water. And so this is how they, they want to calculate the value to the consumer benefit when this comes in. So they want, so basically they have three elements to do this, consumer benefit, external impact, and then effect on the changes in practice. But because consumers don't ever reveal the value they place on an item or service, it's almost impossible unless you have a machine to read the minds of consumers. So this whole thing, this whole proposal is just almost like ridiculous. But I could totally see, just we saw the other article of KPMG, the big four creating some formula here and selling this as a service to corporations who boards, you know, they're under pressure for the environmental and social. Well, maybe it'll distract everyone from the revolving door. Proponents of impact accounting argue that the difficulty of accurately calculating all of this should not prevent us from trying. And then it goes on to say, even inaccurate impact measures could be better than nothing. Uh, I just, I, I don't think that makes sense. <laughs> you're, you're worse off with inaccurate numbers than with no numbers, because then you might do the wrong thing, right? Like, anyway, that's just my gut. Yeah. So it's worth reading, but it seems like a little far-fetched, far-fetched reach really trying to make accountants become the heroes because, you know, you don't have enough work on your plate right now. That's right. Hey, we got some listener feedback, some mail. Shall we dig into that? Yes. So this is from Mike. Not to beat a dead horse about the CPA license, although I am very interested in the various issues around it because I have one section left to pass. 150-hour education requirement. It's completely ridiculous. I've been working in accounting since I got out of college in 2006, 16 tax seasons deep. I want to buy my firm, so I need my CPA license, kind of. So in addition to passing the exams, I need about 15 more college credits to meet the 150-hour requirement. I'm forced to take pointless 100-level classes at my local community college that have no relevance to accounting. You might say, you should have got your license earlier. I agree. But it wasn't until about five years ago where I fully committed to the accounting profession. When I was in my 20s, I was not happy in counting, and it wasn't until my 30s where I became more motivated in my work career. So now I'm 36, three kids, studying for the exams, and working in public accounting. And the education requirement seems so pointless. I imagine most people in my position would not get their CPA, and therefore the CPA profession would lose a good, qualified individual. Then you reported the story about the PE firm buying Eisner Amper and separating the advisory slash tax segment from the assurance segment. This makes me continue to question what the point of the CPA license is for anyone not in audit. The only snag you hit in tax is you need your CPA to get power of attorney for a client. Just wanted to make those comments because they resonate so much with me as a CPA candidate working almost exclusively in tax. Love the show, Mike. 150 hours just continues to be a sore spot. It's so bad, and I took I took philosophy to get my 150 hours. There was an article on accounting today recently with quotes from a survey of CPAs asking, is the CPA too hard? Is it too hard to get the CPA? And what should we do about it? And there were people on both sides, some saying, no, it should be hard. We need to maintain quality and 
should be difficult. And some people were very obvious about saying, we want to limit the number of CPAs because that increases our value. And then other people were questioning the pointlessness of a lot of the activity. And and I think the question was phrased wrong. It's it's not, is the CPA hard? Well, you have to distinguish between hard from a difficulty standpoint in terms of the content, the material. I agree that the exam should be challenging and it should test your knowledge and that the education should filter out people who just can't hack it in accounting that don't have the mental capacity to do this stuff. But what more often happens than not is that the the difficulty is a result of it just takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And that doesn't make you better. That doesn't make you a better accountant. It just means that you're more determined, which I guess has some value. But a lot of people end up not doing it because they have a family. And what it does is it, it makes it so that the only people who become CPAs are those who have the path planned out from the beginning. And it, it eliminates career changers. It makes it really hard if you're a career changer, you didn't figure this out early. I think that's a barrier that's not beneficial to our profession. So yeah, I would, I mean, the 150 hour requirement, just garbage, total pointless money grab from universities, if you ask me. I don't know how to change it. (laughs) I just wish that somebody would acknowledge this at like the ASCPA or at these state boards of accountancy, like that this is an issue because it doesn't seem like they ever talk about it. It's almost like nobody wants to touch it. We got another listener mail. This is from T.C. Whitaker, who's the founder and CEO of Audit Site. He said, Hi, Blake. Absolutely love the show and think you and David are doing a great job. In my previous role in building a startup business inside of PwC that automated bookkeeping for small and medium-sized businesses, I required my management team to listen to the podcast. It led to a ton of great discussion. Thank you. I just got to say, side note, that's pretty cool that he's inside of PwC and and his management team is listening to our show, David. Anyway, continuing on, he says, I really enjoyed the latest episode and wanted to send you a note on two of the topics discussed. The first was the discussion around PE purchasing the non-audit side of a CPA firm. The independence rules for auditors cannot be overemphasized in the discussion enough. These rules, which are good, ensure that an audit firm remains independent from their clients and as such certain services are forbidden to be sold to these audit clients. By separating the CPA firm, in theory, the non-audit side of the business would be able to turn around and sell all those previously forbidden or off-limit services into the client base. I just wonder what the regulators will say about this. Time will tell. The other topic of discussion, which is one of my hot-button items, is incentives. Why people do not understand this concept is really puzzling to me. Why CPAs who run these firms do not understand how to align incentives to desired behaviors and outcomes is flat-out ludicrous. If anyone should understand this concept, it should be a CPA, but for some reason, firm leaders really struggle with this. A great example of how and why incentives work can be found in my city of Atlanta. Back in 2017, there was a massive fire in South Buckhead under I-85. This fire resulted in one of the busiest interstates in the U.S. collapsing. The state and local government, realizing that this would lead to massive financial losses for the city and state, acted quickly to put financial incentives in place for the contractor to finish as quickly as possible while maintaining all safety standards. Guess what? They finished early, and Atlantans once again could commute to Midtown and Downtown. Firm owners and leaders should really look hard at their practices in how they can use this time-tested concept of incentives to align desired behaviors and outcomes to make their firms more profitable. 
Why they don't is a real mystery to me. And that was all around the discussion of how timesheets incentivize people to take a long time to do work. Because when you're incentivizing people to take a lot of time or to bill a lot of time, they're going to take a lot of time. Seems yeah, kind of obvious. That, the, the Amazon <laughs> law, it ties to why people jump, go do work at the treasury and come back, right? It's, there's, they're motivated by the behavior that's going to happen at the end. Yeah, exactly. Like the, that, that person in government is motivated not by serving taxpayers, but by serving the clients of the big four firm because they're going to come back and work for those clients again and make a million bucks. Yeah. So I have an article that ties into uh, motivations. Let's hear it. So this is an article on Law 360. New York law firm slams Intuit over QuickBooks transaction fees. As soon as I saw this headline, I knew how to open it up because I knew for a fact, before I read the article, that, oh, some lawyer didn't like the fees they paid on their transactions. And of course, that's exactly what this is. So, so this Manhattan, is like most most people would just complain on Twitter or Facebook, and this this person wrote a press release. It's, yeah, it's a press release. It's a uh, class action suit. So this is Manhattan-based Shankar Ninon and Co. LLP. They are suing Intuit because of the uh, transaction fees. So remember when Intuit migrated from their old ACH, which is like a quarter or fifty cents, to the one percent fee, but it's overnight. And for a while there, it was great because not everybody was migrated. And I even did that on accident. I signed up thinking I was turning on next day deposits just for that one deposit I wanted to make. And then you turn it on for all. So somewhere along the line, there was confusion. And then there was no going back. There's no that going was... back. And, and, you know, and he got an email that said there wouldn't be a fee. You know, there's confusion. But this goes back to motivations. So he basically had to pay more than $4,000 in transaction fees. He complained. He reached out to QuickBooks. They refused to do a full refund, but they did acknowledge uh, QuickBooks representative acknowledged that the change was uh, confusing and they offered a $7 refund per transaction. Hmm. So this lawyer would have gotten 70% back of that 4000 and be able to move on and keep running their day. But they didn't want to do that because where's their more money in? As class a, lawyer, lawsuit. a class action suit. So now there's a class action lawsuit happening and it's going to be every... The class could be every QuickBooks user who was using ACH payments through Intuit Merchant Services. And got moved over to the 1% next day thing or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That could be a lot of money. Which right? could be all. I mean, exactly. Yeah. It could be thousands of dollars per business. Possibly. Maybe I could be in this lawsuit. I don't know. I didn't yeah. see the... I didn't get... But they, they'll reach out to all the QuickBooks people, right? And you'll get a postcard oh, in the mail and I could opt into this hmm. for my $17. And a bunch of QuickBooks users are going to get $17 back or $7 back, whatever it is. But he and this law firm is going to get a million bucks out of this class action suit. It's, oh, it's the motivations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of Intuit, Intuit has launched a venture arm to invest in startups as reported in TechCrunch. How much money is going into this venture arm? Does it say here? Is this like a, a new thing? I don't even know I mean, if it's a good article. <laughs> I have it. <laughs> and now, yeah, I brought it. Because really, uh, it, it's a press release from Intuit to just more. They, they, they talk about their venture arm, but it's really just a way for them to brag about their, you know, their five big bets that they keep talking about in every one of their um, press releases or their um, investor docs. Like it's just a way for them to talk about connecting people with experts, bolster the platform, unlocking smart money decisions, helping small businesses get customers, talent and technology and cryptocurrency and blockchain. It's like they're five big bets. It's just another way to talk about them in a mm. news article. 
Well, you might want to watch out because uh, the article also says that they are an investor in Melio payments. <laughs> and then they talk about clear.co. Did you see this one? Uh, yeah, an e-commerce investment company that was infused with $215 million from SoftBank in July. What are they? So I went and looked. It looks like they're a, um, a loan player. So you connect all your accounts and your e-commerce shopping carts, and then they give you like loans based well, that's on possibly new. your inventory or your possible revenue you're going to get yeah. from sales. So it's a little bit of a finance loan play. So I'm sure it's tied back to QuickBooks um, credit or not. Mm -hmm. Quick, what do they call that now? QuickBooks, QuickBooks Capital maybe? QuickBooks Capital. Sorry, that's the correct name. Yeah. And tied to that. So yeah. So it's like clear.co, Melio Payments. They didn't say any others, but it says they've made a few other investments already. Hmm. But of course, you know, e-commerce and omni-channel is like one of the big ones they want to look at, look into. One thing well, they said, the reason why they 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 like about this is they think they have a, an advantage when doing a venture because they can expose these companies they're going to invest in to their platform of 50 million customers worldwide. Well, and that's what I was going to say is like the value is if you are an app in the QuickBooks ecosystem, why wouldn't you want Intuit Ventures to invest in your series A or series B or series C. It's a no brainer because then they're going to help you get in front of those QuickBooks users. And I feel yeah. like it's been around for a long time. It's never been a TechCrunch article. Mm. I think it's been around for a very long time into it, like maybe a decade mm. plus. Coinbase, the popular crypto wallet has added direct deposit into crypto accounts. So now this sounds like a terrible idea. You can have your paycheck deposited a percentage of it deposited into Coinbase, you can hold your money into dollars. Or if you are feeling particularly aggressive, you can transfer it into cryptocurrency like Bitcoin with no fees. And that brings me to the other big news about cryptocurrency, which is China banning cryptocurrency. They're getting rid of it as a competitor to the digital yuan. It first started with banks not being allowed in China to transact in crypto. And now it looks like everybody the crypto markets dipped, but then they recovered. So I guess people aren't too worried about this. But if I were into crypto, I'd be kind of worried because the US government has also expressed a lot of reservations about crypto. And some recent stuff coming out of the SEC and Treasury does not make me that confident that we won't do something similar in the future, developing a digital dollar, like a, a, a crypto. U.S. dollar, and then also we've talked about it on the show before. Um, in fact, I want to say somebody from the Big Four is assisting the government in the creation of this. Here's the thing that changed how I think about this: it's the historical parallel that makes me think that ultimately we will not allow crypto to continue. This is an article in the Wall Street Journal called "SEC's Gensler Doesn't See Cryptocurrencies Lasting." long. He said Tuesday, he doesn't see much long-term viability for cryptocurrencies. And he compared the thousands of cryptocurrencies in existence to the so-called wildcat banking era that took hold in the US from 1837 until 1863 in the absence of federal bank regulation. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Gusto. The accounting profession is at a defining moment in history. As clients look to rebuild and return to work, the role accounting professionals play is vital. 
Numbers are only one piece of the puzzle, and new challenges require new solutions. At Gusto's next conference on October 21st, you'll unlock your full potential with new people advisory skills, services, and technologies. Modernize your payroll practice by registering for Gusto Next today. To get your free virtual pass to Gusto Next, which includes all the keynotes, raffles, and activities, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Gusto Next. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash G-U-S-T-O-N-E-X-T. And this takes me back to my U.S. history class, AP U.S. history in high school. And it's an incredible historical story about banking in the United States when we didn't have a Federal Reserve. Banks issued their own currencies, which they then sometimes refused to redeem for their purported value in gold or silver. That led to actually a number of like bank failures and runs on banks, and it created chaos in our country in a lot of ways. And eventually, Abraham Lincoln created the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and that's when we got rid of all of these just random banknotes that any bank could issue and standardize it all. So like ultimately, like why would the US government allow this to continue? Why why wouldn't they create a digital dollar just like the digital yuan and control it? You're assuming it's not being controlled by the US government right now. <laughs> Maybe well, this is why I, China banned it, because it was going to- Controlled by the U.S. government? It's, it's a U.S. operation. Uh, I think it's more like Peter Thiel. If, any, if, there's, a, if there's a giant conspiracy theory around cryptocurrency, it's going to be the, uh, the PayPal mafia, not the U.S. government. The big concern that has actually made the SEC take note of this is stablecoins. So stablecoins are popular because they are pegged to the U.S. dollar, but they're not regulated like the US dollar, anyone can issue a stablecoin. So this is creating potential problems. Like, like it's it's like it's just like having banks with their own currencies out there. So it'd be like and, me saying, hey Blake, I have this piece of paper. It's worth a dollar, US Treasury dollar. Yeah. And it's always going to be worth whatever the US the Treasury. It's always going to be worth the US dollar. Take this piece of paper. Don't take my dollar. Exactly. And and then you would say, and by the way, whenever you give me that piece of paper back, I'll give you a U.S. dollar. Oh, sure thing, sucker. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. And and so these, but these organizations, you know, they aren't they aren't regulated. So other than you know, sometimes they'll go through an audit, and the audit will say that they've got enough reserves. But like other than that, so to me, the regulation is inevitable. And the question is just, what's that going to do to the value of Bitcoin when it happens? Will it continue to grow or will it disappear? Why well, should we jump into app news? Let's do it. So speaking of Bitcoin and blockchain, this is an article in Financial Post. It's an app news article, but the only reason I brought it to the show is because it, I already brought what I'd say is the longest article I've ever read for the show. This article has the longest headline ever for the show. So I'm going to read the headline only. Okay. Ready? Gilded launches Compass, the most advanced QuickBooks integration for crypto institutional adoption of cryptocurrency has intensified the demand for sophisticated crypto accounting functionality. Gilded Compass streamlines financial reporting for cryptocurrency and QuickBooks Online. That is the article title. Is that the press release title or the blog post or what? And this is a press release <laughs> title. Okay, so wait, we got to break that down then. Jeez, what to talk about stuffing keywords into that. So the app is Gilded. It's Gilded. They launched and a the feature, feature called Compass. Announced today the launch of Compass, a solution that enables advanced mapping capabilities between blockchain wallets and the company's general ledger. That's it. 
the actual content is actually smaller than the than the headline. The headline. So I so, just thought that was a ridic- most ridiculous headline I've ever seen. So over on the Gilded blog, I do like that they have a diagram that shows how this works, and it shows how you can have a bunch of crypto transactions occurring in different wallets and how they would map into QuickBooks balance sheet accounts. And then also the income and expense mapping in properly. And I guess if you have a lot of wallets and a lot of activity going on in your business, then this would eliminate the need for spreadsheets to get all this stuff in the accounting system. So I wonder like, who is using this thing? I want to I want to meet one of these companies that has like these crazy crypto accounting needs. Like who who is a typical gilded customer? If you're listening and you use gilded, I want to know. I actually am very curious. I would I would love to hear. Cuz I think there's a lot of people futzing around with blockchain and bitcoin and they have lots of wallets, but kind of on the personal side. Like I got blockchain in four or five wallets now. It's like but it's all it's not business. Right. right. I want to know who are the businesses that are using this as they're like as a primary method of transacting. I mean, maybe if you're an e-commerce seller and you accept uh, blockchain payments or, you know, you're saying, and people are paying you across different wallets. You could be a merchant maybe, right? You're selling goods and services and people are paying you. And now you have a mess because you got a bunch of stuff in wallets. Expensify, which in this press release describes itself as a payments super app, is going carbon neutral in 2021 by completely offsetting its annual carbon footprint to support its path to carbon neutrality, Expensify leveraged Watershed, the software platform helping companies run a world-class climate program. So hot on the heels of 1% cash back on your Expensify card, you can now also use an app that is that is carbon neutral. Aren't all the cards made from plastic? <laughs> I think the card should be made from uh, recycled cardboard, and then that would that would be very good for the environment. Which virtual conference software, which video conferencing software tops the list for CPA firms? For conferences or video Sorry. conferencing? Video conferencing, not conferences. Oh, it's got to be Office 365 or River Client Teams? Nope. No. It is Zoom. Well, actually, no. Is this what they're using or what they're paying for? This is a survey on CPA trend lines and a lot of of traditional firms on here. So this is actually really funny. The top result, the headline's misleading because the top result is 34% that don't use video conferencing. And then after that, it's Zoom at 23.5%, round up to 24. And then it is Microsoft Teams at around 13%. Go to meeting, log me in, that's nine. Then Skype is nine percent. Cisco WebEx, six percent. Join.me, three percent. Please, people. There's an other category. I don't know even what you would use other than those. Google Hangouts gets one percent. If you force your employees or your clients to use WebEx, you hate both of them. <laughs> it's the worst customer experience of all time, isn't it? I mean, it is pretty terrible. I think the only companies that use it these days are really big. Oh, and in the chart, the breakdown, it's like, yeah, big firms use it. I, I can't believe you said 30% don't use it at all. Don't use it. 34% don't use any video conferencing, which doesn't surprise me. But they have it right there inside their Microsoft Office 365. It's just available. Dude, you know, that takes effort to like figure that out and to learn something new. 
three similar articles together. So Melio, Veeam, and American Express all announced uh, virtual cards. So American Express is partnering with a fintech company called Extend. We've talked about virtual cards on the show before. Business owners can uh, create, let's say I hire you as a subcontractor. I can create a virtual card. You could use it to pay for something. And then I don't have to worry about giving my real credit card number. Maybe it's a one-time online purchase. Those types of things, B2B expenses. Mm-hmm. Melio partnered with JP Morgan. What's interesting about this one, they're going to use JP Morgan's RTP platform. Are you familiar with the RTP platform? No. So you have ACH, but the big banks didn't like how slow ACH is. And they got together and they created their own kind of private transfer protocol. I forgot what the exact mm-hmm. name of it is, but that's they're going to build on that. So in theory, mm. payments should move faster. Oh, it's called real-time payments. Perfect. Real-time payments. Yeah, real-time okay. Payment. So the banks created that. And then Veeam is uh, collaborating with Repay to do cross-payment, cross-border payment and virtual cards. QuickBooks Desktop is going to be subscription only. That's actually kind of big news, isn't it? Or, or has this been happening slowly for a long time? I think it's been slowly happening every year when they phase out the other one, they've been only offering subscription only, or they've been pushing people strongly to it, and now they finally ripped the Band-Aid off. So by the end of the year, according to the QB blog, QuickBooks Desktop will only be subscription by the end of the year. No more one-time purchases of a license. To get any QuickBooks Desktop product, you will have to pay for an annual subscription. So I imagine toward the end of the year, once people realize this, they're going to start getting kind of upset. Oh, the num- uh, like the amount, the numbers of QuickBooks twenty twenty one that'll be sold now, will be gigantic. and that will be used until twenty forty one. Exactly, people will be used <laughs> the same one forever. I know that. They, yeah, there's certain um, versions that people just stay on forever. So, how does it actually work? It's a desktop app, but you have to pay a subscription for it to work, or they shut it I down. I think they first they rolled it into where you have to use an Intuit login to sign into it now, mm-hmm. and then because of that, you can manage the subscription. I think that's kind of how this March happened. Yeah, people are not going to be happy about this. It, it, I was just listening to the Soul of Enterprise, Ron Baker, Ed Class, their show, and they did a really good episode on the subscription economy recently. The su- subscription economy being this concept that we're all moving to subscriptions because it's superior. But they they had a really good point, which is that you can't just take a product that wasn't subscription before and turn it into a subscription and expect people to be happy about that. You have to add something more. It's a it's a, subscri- a new service, right? Yeah. It has to be. It has to give you more than what you got before. Otherwise, people will just see it for what it is, which is just a money grab. So, for instance, with Adobe, you get updates forever, and you never have to upgrade Adobe Photoshop ever again. Is this going to work that way? If I pay for a subscription, am I going to get upgrades forever? But wasn't the difference like when Adobe did that, you probably were paying, like Adobe had a suite of 10 different apps, whatever it was. Mm, Yeah. And you basically paid for one or two of those apps, but the cost of the subscription allows you access to all 10 apps. Exactly. So that's the extra you get. So if QuickBooks is going to do something like this, like make the subscription, maybe the Intuit should just do this. You have a QuickBooks subscription for who knows how much a month. And you can use desktop, you can use online, you can use MailChimp, you could use yeah. Intuit Payroll. Like, Give somebody a real software as a service, all you can eat plan. Give me the whole back office if that's what you're helping with, right? So the way Adobe gives you the entire creative suite. And that's what's beautiful about it is I, if I need to every now and then edit a photo in Photoshop, which I almost never need to do, but let's say I do to make some show art, 
then I can do it. And I don't have to go buy a $300 product. And you're wowed by that. And then you, it justifies in your brain, like, oh, thank God I had the option to do this. And you're, you're going to be yeah. more willing to keep paying for that subscription. That makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a good thing to keep in mind as an accountant, if you are designing subscription-based pricing, value-priced for your firm, it can't just be the same thing you were doing before, but monthly. So for instance, if you just take a tax return that you were charging people, I don't know, 800 bucks for, and you just divide that into 12 payments over the year and you don't add anything to it, they aren't going to value that. It's not going to work. People are not going to want to switch. They'd rather just pay you the 800 when you file the return. But if you also add throughout the year, now you can call me and ask me questions and I'll give you tax advice whenever you want. I'll be available to you. That's something that works as a subscription. That's how you have to think about it. Patriot is partnering with Client Hub. Patriot Software is a payroll provider and they have an advisor program. And now members of the Patriot Advisor program will be able to get discounts on subscriptions to Client Hub, a special lifetime discount. So if you're using Patriot and you want to check out Client Hub for practice management, give that a try. I just have a genius idea. Lay it on. sell the Cloud Accounting Podcast subscription. And it's $10,000 a year, and we will p- bundle in all the SaaS players in this whole space. Every, every app. Every <laughs> you app. just use whatever app you, every app ever created. You can use any <laughs> of them that you want. And we'll just, we'll just have a giant partner dashboard for every single app. And it'll just be us managing people's subscriptions. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But we're, we're not adding value there. Oh, I guess they get unlimited access. Is that the idea? Yeah. They, get, they can use any app they want, in and out, pounce around. No, no. I know, David. They get to call you whenever they want. They, you give out, you get, you, everyone gets your cell phone number and then they call you whenever they have questions. And then I get 50% of that. That's genius. I, that's yeah. the way to go. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Stripe is launching a revenue recognition tool to automate financial reporting. So Stripe, which a lot of SaaS companies now use. Yes. Um, and so they're yeah. la- launching this revenue rec tool. It's available to users in 40 countries and it's really to, uh, all their, all their clients that are SaaS-based, right? Subscription-based revenue models. If you remember, just to rewind for a second, Chargeify purchased, so Chargeify was all about subscription revenue. They purchased a, a startup out of Atlanta called ProRata a few years back, and they're offering the service as part of Chargeify. So this is probably to compete a little bit on that front. But they have a nice quote in here that I think all of our listeners will appreciate. We're moving everything to Stripe, so all this complex work will disappear, says Ariana Cesaro, lead accountant at Product Board. Before Stripe, closing our books meant checking each contract manually and pasting them into an Excel file with a very complicated formula. So, again, another uh, feature of Excel just being chipped away by another app. Oh, speaking of, I was just purchasing Microsoft 365 because I'm no longer employed and my PowerPoint stopped working. And so I had to buy it for the first time in a while. And I went to the site to compare plans. There's a personal plan for 70 bucks a year, and then there's a family plan for 100 bucks a year. And so I'm thinking, all right, well, I guess maybe I'm going to need this for family. And underneath the price where it has all the features in a table, the third thing down is money in Excel. And there's a little checkbox for that money in Excel. You're still pushing money on Microsoft money. Still trying. <laughs> well, it's not Microsoft money though. It's a new Excel plugin 
We talked about oh, this. Oh, yeah, and, and it syncs through... Uh, Your bank. Stripe or, or whoever they're using. It uses one of these one of these bank feed providers so that you can pull your bank feeds directly into Excel. So they're actually, I mean, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's only nine rows on this pricing table for Microsoft 365. And that is the third one down. But that's the they, home one, the, the one they're getting at family. Right. See, yeah, yeah. I have the family subscription, but I also have a business subscription because I forgot which one of the apps is only available in the business subscription. Oh, which one? Which I don't know. One? It's tied to my Exchange server. That's why. That's why oh. when I get Exchange server, I get all the Microsoft 365 apps, but I'm not going to cancel my family plan because I have family that needs to use that plan. So I'm paying two subscriptions. What, what, what's the app that you can't get on personal? Oh, it's Exchange. You have your own Exchange server? Yeah, for my domain. Oh. oh, I think you can now route that through like 365. You might be able to get rid of it. Or no, maybe I, no. I mean, I have it the three sixty. Yeah, it's not Exchange Server. It's the equivalent that's on Office three sixty five now. But I don't think oh. you can do that with the family one. Oh, you can't have your own domain. Got it. Yeah, interesting. So, well, because I cause, oh, because you use Microsoft for your own personal domain. I use at Google Apps. Got it. Well, and I of course I still have to pay for Google Apps <laughs> in addition to this. But I, I do have an article. It's not really app related to close things out, but I don't know where you're at. Again, I've got a zillion stories here. That I could talk about, but like we don't have time. So yeah, whatever you want to close it, it's with. It's a one sentence story. So we've talked a lot about the buy now, pay later people. Yes. There's all these players are the huge valuations. Well, there's articles starting to pop up about how people are overextending themselves. With buy now, pay later. It's, yeah. It's because yeah. even I saw Walmart announced they're going to um, get rid of layaway. And so you can just go to Walmart and just do buy now, pay later. And so maybe if every time you go to Walmart, you're buy now, pay later. And next thing you know, three months from now, you stacked up a lot of two-week payments. So guess who is the most upset about customers overextending themselves with buy now, pay later? AOC? No, uh, uh, maybe a trade organization. Uh, for an The industry. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? Uh, the Well, that's close. It's the Consumer Credit Trade Association, who basically is the payday lenders. They're very upset because what's happening is they're giving loans to people that are overextended because these buy now, pay later apps don't track on your credit report anymore. Oh, and they don't have visibility. That is funny. And actually, you know, I would probably start putting this on a conversation for your clients because you can do this as a business. You just click buy now, pay later. Yeah, yeah. And who who's taking the time to put this as a liability on your balance sheet? Zero people. Zero. And you your clients could be overextended and not even know. So this is probably yeah. I, I think this I, at first I thought this buy now pay later was probably just a concern for consumers, but I would say it's probably a concern for small business owners because it's it's not transparent. Yeah. We don't really see it. Well, and that's why it's easy to do it as a consumer. What's really interesting about buy now pay later, I didn't realize this until I was listening to the Wall Street Journal their podcast, The Journal, they did a whole episode on why buy now, pay later is blowing up. And it's it basically started with Walmart deciding to ditch its credit card and go all in with buy now, pay later. Because uh, Walmart was getting upset at its credit card provider for not approving enough of its customers. And if Walmart's customers don't get approved for credit, then Walmart loses sales. And they made a deal with one of these big ones. I think it was the one that was like the $24 billion deal. The reason that these buy now, pay later companies are able to issue more credit is because it's micro credit. You're only taking on risk for a small transaction as opposed to giving somebody a whole line of credit. 
And so they can do this all day long, but at some point, maybe the party ends and the musical chairs, it doesn't work anymore. And then all of these people start defaulting on their buy now, pay later is once they've been maxed out. The same way that people max out their credit card limits, right? Because this is a new tech thing, we haven't maxed out people with buy now, pay later yet. Have you used it yet? No, I've never tried it. So I've used it, I've used it three times. I used it once just to see what it was like. Like it was like $200 purchase. I was like, okay, fine. I'll yeah. break it up over the next three, whatever, how many weeks. And that's the problem. I don't know how much I broke it up. And then I did it again because I was going to buy something that was a little bit more expensive, but it was not going to ship for like 12 weeks or something. I was like, well, I'm not going to pay it in full now. Let me try this buy in four thing or pay in four. So I did it again. And then I think I did it a third time just for shits and giggles. I'm not even positive. But what's weird is you just get these emails. And I don't know. If, I don't even know what it's for. It just says you're paying for payment of twenty eight dollars and fifty eight cents will be withdrawn from your account on this day. But I don't know what they're for. I don't remember what they're for. Like it's very. It, it you you can't really track it. So if you do this a dozen times in a, in a five six week period, you have a mess. You don't know what you have or don't have. There's not like you. There's not like a dashboard somewhere that shows me like because every website has a different buy now pay later vendor. Maybe maybe what'll happen is somebody will come up with this idea and they'll take all your buy now, pay laters, and they'll roll them into a single monthly payment where you can then consolidate all of this buy now, pay later stuff into what is basically a, a credit card payment, right? We're going full circle. Yeah, it's like the junk mortgages. <laughs> you bundle them up into, um, uh, what do they call those? Uh, the securities, the mortgage-backed securities. Yes, mortgage-backed securities, but it'll, oh, be, uh, it'll be- I'm having PTSD just thinking about it, man. Like I graduated into that crisis. Let's not have it again. So I mean, Somebody, that's yeah. the takeaway for this week. Go talk to your clients, see if they're using buy now, pay later, because they might have debts <laughs> not on the balance sheet. Not on the books. All right. Well, David, this was a pleasure as always. If people want to get in touch with you online, where should they do that? Uh, I'm on all the socials. I'm at David Leary. If you're on LinkedIn, just say I'm not a bot. I am at Blake T. Oliver. If you'd like to call us and leave us a message, you're always welcome to email us a voice memo. I think that gets you really high quality. Just take a voice memo with your phone, shoot us a message on LinkedIn or Twitter with the recording or email us. I'm Blake at BlakeOliver.com. You can also call our voicemail number. That number is 202-695-1040, 202-695-1040. Call us, leave us a message. You get a couple minutes on that and we will listen and we will very likely play it on the air. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy. I'll see you again on Sunday. Time for the classifieds. If you're looking to fast track a scalable seven-figure accounting firm that doesn't drive you into the ground, check out Ryan Lazanis's online coaching membership, Future Firm Accelerate. Designed around Ryan's experience taking his cloud firm from scratch to sale so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get online learning and topics that help you automate and systemize all aspects of your firm. You'll get coaching when you need help with implementation. And you'll also join a collaborative community of hundreds of other forward-thinking firm owners. For more details, head over to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. That is www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. I quickly wanted to let you know about a new project that I've been working on for the last year or so. I'm launching a podcast network called Accounting Podcast Network. It has new podcasts that I know you'll love, like the Accounting Salon Conversations podcast hosted by Mandy Aguilar and the Accounting Automation Workflows podcast co-hosted by Brian Clare and Heather Satterley. 
head over to accountingpodcastnetwork.com. That's accountingpodcastnetwork.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.